This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 149. Today we speak about amillennialism with Kim Riddlebarger. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and this is episode number 149, just one shy of a big milestone. And we are very thankful to welcome back to the program here Jeffrey C. Waddington, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. Hey, Jeff, it's been a while. Yeah, about three months of my memory. Is it really that long? August. The last episode I was on was with Gabe Floor when we discussed the Atonement. Oh, the Atonement. Well, that was a fun episode. It was. It's great to have you back. It hasn't been uh, anything but just scheduling issues in case somebody's wondering why, Jeff. Yeah, that's all it's been. (laughs) We're not having a feud or anything. nothing like that. Well, we're also very pleased to welcome our good friend Nick Batzig, who is a pastor, a church planning pastor at in Richmond Hill, Georgia. Welcome back, Nick. It's great to have you. Thanks, Camden. Good to be on. Yeah, and you've got a lot of work going on down there, and we're very thankful for you. Um, and uh, I, I think as we start, I'd like to just mention that there's there's a lot of good work going on in Georgia. Nick, would you like to mention just uh, a little bit of the um, pastor group that you're getting getting together with in case there are some others that'd like to join along? Sure. We have a Coastal Empire Reform Fellowship that was started 20 years ago. Um, Roland Barnes is the PCA minister in Statesboro, Georgia. And 20, 25 years ago, there was very little Calvinistic and Reform influence in Georgia. In fact, Southeast Georgia, it was probably just Terry Johnson and um, Roland Barnes at that time. And so Roland started the Coastal Empire Reform Fellowship and it's grown. Uh, we have as many as 30, 35 men from the Savannah, Brunswick, all over the coast of um, Georgia come and we meet once a month and we have a discussion group and one of the pastors uh, does a lecture or teaches on some subject. Um, and we have Calvinistic Baptist and um, Reformed Presbyterian ministers. And um, it's just really, it, it really is a great um, a great avenue for like-minded men to get together and strengthen one another. And the Lord's bringing a lot of, especially Calvinistic Baptists from Southern Seminary and whatnot to the area. So very thankful to see um, more solid theology being rooted um, in the churches down here. So um, it's exciting. Well, that's down in the Georgia area. And if you're in that area, you can get a hold of Nick. Uh, Just email us. I'll forward it along at mail at reformedforum.org. Or if you have similar groups uh, in other parts of the country or other countries, let us know that as well. And uh, there's a lot of great work going on. And some of that great work is off in the great state of California. And uh, we are very pleased to welcome our guest today, who is Kim Riddlebarger. He is Senior Pastor of Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, California. And he's also Visiting Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. And, of course, many of you, probably most of you, Know him as the ho- uh, co-host of the great program, The White Horse Inn. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Riddlebarger. It's great to have you. Good to be on with you guys. Today we're going to be speaking about Dr. Riddlebarger's excellent book, A Case for Amillennialism, Understanding the End Times, which is published by Baker Books a few years ago, back in 2003. And uh, this has been an, uh, just a tremendous help to many. Uh, it was basically the principal reason why I ended up becoming a non-millennialist, and it was very helpful for me just to come to a better understanding of Scripture and how it has unfolded through time and God's uh, progressive plan of revelation. So we are very excited to be speaking about that book today, but I do want to pause for any uh, announcements or news uh, before we actually get into our discussion. Jeff? Uh just wanted to, to mention the... Uh the Festrift for Dr. Uh, Robert Godfrey, president of Westminster Seminary, California, came out. Kim, was that about a month ago? Less than that, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm losing track of time, I guess. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful publication. Uh, do you have a chapter in that? I do have a chapter I thought in that so. on the uh, frequency of the Lord's Supper. Yes, very I good. saw that. I saw that. It's very high okay. quality. Uh, the uh, Dr. Uh, Scott Clark was kind enough to share with us an electronic version of that. Mm-hmm. 
been reading it on my e-reader. Mm. Uh, so keeping up with that, but it's very uh, excellent book. Uh, would recommend our listeners uh, get a hold of a copy. Uh, and we hope to invite uh, co- several contributors on in the future to yes. do some interviews. So we're working on that as we speak, uh, trying to figure that out with uh, with the rest of our schedule. So look forward to that. Pick up a copy, and um, we'll have some great interviews coming hey, up in the future. Yeah, Nick? Kim, just out of interest, how often do you all observe the Lord's Supper at the church you pastor? At Christ Reformed, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Okay, great. Yeah. So we're one of the few that do that in the URC, but I think there, the, the tendency is more and more frequent celebrations of the supper. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, it's uh, it's a fascinating subject, so I'd encourage reading the contribution there from Dr. Riddlebarger and uh, think about the issue critically. Sometimes we just go along with the flow, and people do it monthly, and that's that's what we do. But <laughs> it's it's good to think about it critically and to think about the scriptural warrant for the different observances and practice. So take a look at that and. Uh, be edified as a result. Any other news or announcements? Uh, the only thing, I, other thing I wanted to mention, and this is uh, noted at uh, Feeding on Christ, and that is the recent conference on Reformed Theology in, over in Heidelberg in Germany. Uh, wonderful series. There's a website, and uh, uh, Nick, perhaps you can remind me of what the, the URL is for that. Um, well, I'm not sure what it is. It's it's only it's only a few posts back on feeding on Christ, but it's yeah. uh, so you can find the, the first Heidelberg Reform Conference. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Definitely, right? Let yeah. people know. Sponsored by uh, Sebastian Heck and uh, speakers uh, such as uh, Carl Truman and John Payne mm-hmm. and uh, Derek, Derek Thomas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's uh, Great excellent. contributions there. That's excellent. So, and that's also tied in with church planting. In, in Germany, uh, getting the gospel, the Reformed faith, back to Germany. Uh, in, into Germany. So we're pleased with, about that. Yeah, and Sebastian Heck and, and others are doing great work there. So we're very excited. So uh, visit the, that website online, and we'll have the link to that in the show notes. And uh, I do want to mention that we are broadcasting live, uh, as I like to say, to Machen's Warrior Children around the world. So if you are one of Machen's Warrior Children, uh, you can listen to us live, if you would so like, at reformedforum.tv. And uh, there you'll find links to all of our other programs as well and a calendar uh, that you can keep updated um, and notified as to when we are going to be broadcasting live and what the subject and the guest will be. So visit us online at reformedforum.tv. And, of course, uh, especially at this time of year, we could always use your support. So if you visit us online at reformedforum.org, please consider clicking on the Donate Now button and help us out. Uh, We do produce and distribute all of these programs free of charge, but it does cost, and so we appreciate and we would uh, very much like for you to help us to continue to do that. So visit us online at reformedforum.org and help us to cover the cost of distributing these programs, and we thank you so much for your support of the Reformed Forum and Christ the Center. All right. Well, today we are speaking, as I mentioned earlier, about amillennialism, looking at the wonderful book written by Dr. Kim Riddlebarger, A Case for Amillennialism, Understanding the End Times. Dr. Riddlebarger, um, I remember um, an interview you did on uh, the Bible Answer Man uh, several years ago, maybe back in 2003, and you gave... um, you told a little story about your path into uh, Reformed theology and your path into amillennialism. How did you end up becoming an amillennialist, or were you always an amillennialist? Well, I came to amillennialism kicking and clawing and fighting every step of the way. I, 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 there was a time in my life when I thought someone who was an amillennarian must either be a Roman Catholic or a Protestant liberal. Yeah. Uh, I was raised in dispensationalism. Um, I was my family owned a Christian bookstore, so I was around evangelical culture and the subculture all the time. And I remember very vividly, you know, my family we would watch uh, Howard C. E. Steps TV program. Some of you may remember that he had the the first glass chalkboard I ever saw, and he'd write all over it, and it'd be interspersed with stories of wars and combat in the Middle East. And of course, as a teenage kid, and like model airplanes and tanks and army men and you know, it really catches your imagination to think, wow, this is all foretold in the Bible. It's a really cool battle. Yeah. So from the time I was a little kid, I was fascinated by the topic. And uh, the first 
serious theology I read, you, you'll maybe laugh, but at the time it was serious theology, it was how Lindsay's Lake Great Planet Earth. Oh, it's hugely probably, influential. Yes. Yeah, I was just an early teen. I was you know, kind of the first you know, real book I actually read, and, and read it from cover to cover and couldn't put it down, and was an avid dispensationalist from then on. Uh, taught Bible studies in my church and place where I worked, and, and was an ardent defender of the position. And since I owned a Christian bookstore, we had our uh, stuff delivered to us. And one, of these, one day, uh, one of the delivery guys was giving me a bunch of guff about Song How Lindsay books. And he was asking all kinds of questions about Revelation 20 and figurative interpretation. And, and I remember being just flummoxed by the guy. He just was beating me up, and I, there, I had no defense. So all my canned answers just didn't work, and you know he was like two steps ahead of me. And that that really got me thinking. Well, if I'm going to be a dispensationalist, I'm going to have to defend this stuff. So I started reading and thinking. To make a long, complicated story short, I became reformed in my soteriology. Became a five mm-hmm. Calvinist through the providence of God. I ended up at uh, Simon Greenleaf School of Law under John Work Montgomery and Rod Rosenblatt, uh, two Lutheran theologians, and they realized I was reformed. They both said, you need to go to Westminster. Yeah. That's where you need to be. So I commuted from Orange County, California, down to the seminary in Escondido, and uh, Bob Strimple and Dennis Johnson and Bob Godfrey were all very, very kind and gracious to me, but uh, it was reading Gerhardus Voss's Pauline Eschatology and the Two-Age Model. Uh, that and Herman Ritterboss just finally pushed me to the brink and uh, the the issue for me at the end was the presence of evil in the millennial age. That mm-hmm. finally, mm-hmm. I gave up dispensationalism, became historic premillennial. George Ladd was about all I had left, and it was finally the, the existence of evil in the millennial age that just did me. And I, I I finally gave up and said, Uncle, that's it. I'm done. There really is a force of that two age eschatology, and I remember uh, being in dispensational circles myself, and and. Be, trying to wrestle with uh, some of these issues, and I remember hearing a kind of a two-age eschatology defense of amillennialism, and it and the weight of it just didn't get to me yet. And it wasn't until I, I read your book, and then several years later started reading Gerhardus Voss much more, that the real force of a two-age eschatology and what that entails, uh, and in all of Paul's language, in, in especially Paul's in in his writings about this age and the age to come, it wasn't until. Uh, much later that I really started to understand how forceful of an argument that was. Yeah, that's similar to my experience. The first time I heard it, I thought, oh, this isn't any big deal. Yeah. And then as you start to, to look through the passages, you realize, man, this is everywhere. And then this is throughout the Gospels. Jesus speaks of this often. Paul does. It's in the book of Hebrews. I mean, it's just every place. And the more okay. you start to look for it, you start finding it everywhere. And then you realize, this is the eschatology of the New Testament. This is the New Testament is non-millenarian there. There's no expectation of a golden age on the earth anyplace. There's a contrast between time and eternity. Yeah. Right. And, you know, Voss has, Voss has that article on Kiliism in um, Redemptive History and Biblical Interpretation where it really struck me as a new Christian. I was reading that, and um, he said, you know, the Bible never speaks of three comings of Jesus. And yeah, that's essentially yeah. what the premillennial position, whatever brand people hold to. They're saying the Bible teaches he comes back three times. And that was really imp- impacting to me personally. Mm. Well, what the, my argument in response to that was, well, he only comes back twice. He just comes once and doesn't touch the earth. Right. He comes <laughs> to the clouds. Grabs <laughs> the it's like two and a half, two and a half times. It, two and a half. <laughs> and, and that's kind of where you're, you know, you've, you've claimed to be premillennial and dispensationalist because you read the Bible literally. Mm-hmm. And then when you're up against it and you start to have to make these fine distinctions between him returning but not really returning, you realize how you can't make good on your own system. And, and there's just there's no way you can read the Bible literally as you say you're going to do and take the text seriously. So those are exactly the kinds of issues I ran into, and I finally just, just yeah. gave up. Also, it, Dr. Poitras uh, brings up an interesting point in his book, Understanding Dispensationalists, about the multiple appearances of the final trumpet. <laughs> and so it, yeah. it points out the issue yeah. at hand when when we espouse such a, a, a literal hermeneutic, uh, the types of things we can run into when we encounter different genre in Scripture. And I want to kind of, as we're starting off, maybe discuss this at, at beginning at a hermeneutical level, different approaches to prophecy in particular. In your book, you treat, uh, you do an excellent job in several chapters treating 
different approaches to prophecy. Um, how does a Reformed person approach an Old Testament prophecy, and how might that be different from a dispensational approach? Well, it's, that is the, the key question. Whenever you're talking about eschatology, especially when you are using a classical reform, redemptive historical hermeneutic, when you're looking for the unfolding drama of redemption from Genesis to Revelation that centers on Christ's person and work, whenever you're looking at you know the Bible through that lens, and you come up against a dispensationalist who's looking at the Bible through a different lens, this is not a question of, you know, wattage, who's smarter? Right. It's not a question of who knows their Bible better. It's a question of whose presuppositions make the best sense, and whose presuppositions withstand the test of interpretation. And by that I mean, when you're looking at the Bible redemptive historically through a Christ-centered lens, all kinds of passages that are confusing and difficult suddenly make sense. They make perfect right. sense. Right. When you're a dispensationalist, you'll find that the thing works, provided every minute detail lines up the way you think that it does. And if it defaults at any one point, it's like throwing a, a piece of wood in a you know, bicycle spokes, and the whole thing just freezes immediately, and you go over the handlebars. Um, I think your question is, is really insightful. Dispensations will say that their starting point is, A, different plans of redemption for Jew and Gentile. So right away they're going to be looking for a separate narrative for national Israel. And dispensations, of course, don't believe there are two plans of salvation. They'll deny that to their dying breath. I did. But they really do have two plans of salvation in that God is going to deal with the Gentiles one way, the Jews another way. It might be the same gospel, but the way it comes to them is, is so different that it, for all intents and purposes, it is two different plans of salvation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They also argue that you have to interpret the Bible literally. Now, if you're coming out of a world where in Protestant liberals are constantly attacking the historical reliability of the Bible, where every um, National Geographic special has some idiocy from the Gospel of Judas or some other thing that <laughs> you know attacks the authority of Scripture, that plays very well to a Bible-believing Christian. We take the Bible literally, we interpret it literally, we take it seriously, and that is the dispensationalist big attraction. Um, it's commendable. And God bless, it really is. Yeah. And God bless them for defending the authority of Scripture. The problem with that is, when you're using a Christ-centered hermeneutic, you don't start with Genesis 12 and look at the promise God made to Abraham and then insist that that reading of the promise overrides everything that comes subsequent to that. So, for example, the land promise in Genesis 12, and it's repeated throughout you know, 15, 18, 22, on and on and on, when that land promise is repeated, dispensations say, see, that must mean Israel means Israel, and that God is going to save Israel again to fulfill the land promise at the end of the age. Whereas I would look at that and I would say, how do Jesus and the apostles look at the land promise? How do Jesus right. and the apostles look at the Abrahamic covenant? And that is, is at the heart of this entire debate, because you know, as you guys probably know, John MacArthur, who is in many ways the ablest and certainly the loudest of the dispensational offenders, uh, gave a lecture not long ago at the yeah. Shepherds Conference where he argued that, you know, if you're uh, a consistent Calvinist, you have to be premillennial, and as he defines premillennial, it's a dispensational premillennial. Mm-hmm. So you guys believe God elects Israel and then rejects Israel, therefore you're not consistently reformed. Well, it's because of his, his hermeneutic that, that uh, has to take these things literally, and he can't understand that Jesus and the Apostles show us that there are two covenants, a covenant of works, a covenant of grace, you know, and, and that whole, whole uh, reform narrative. So uh, this really is a hermeneutics question. It is. And then also with the, the we interpret the Bible literally um, approach with that, um, because when they come to the book of Revelation, or for that matter, Song of Solomon, you come to books with symbols, and everybody has to interpret symbol. And so then literal is earthly rather than spiritual and Christological. It automatically becomes, what does this symbol mean? So it's, it's not, well, we take this literally. I mean, nobody thinks the woman in the song is actually a door made out of cedar. That would be a literal interpretation, but it's, you know, it's a... Uh, um, it, it's interpreting the, the symbol itself. So, I mean, that's kind of a straw man to say we interpret the Bible literally. Well, it is, and I, I, I want to make a distinction between the, the kind of prophecy pundits that play on this 
and more capable dispensational theologians. I think it's fair, it's fair to make that distinction because most dispensational theologians are embarrassed by how Lindsay is, you know, we are. But I think one place where you see this is in the book of Revelation. For example, Walvard you know, defends Revelation chapter 20 and the literalist reading of that, that Satan is bound with a real chain in a real abyss. Yeah. And at that at this point, it's not a question of reading the Bible literally. It's does John intend us mm-hmm. in a book that is not historical narrative? I mean, the book of Revelation, it's a letter. It has an epistolary structure to it. It also does have predictive prophecy in it, and there's this weird relationship between apocalyptic literature and uh, fulfilled prophecy, predictive prophecy. So in a book like that, where every number, number and every symbol comes out of the Old Testament, um, and we read, I saw an angel coming down, a, you know, how do we take that? Are we intended to take that literally? And so I've tried to make the case that dispensations, for the best of motives, with the purest of intentions, but with a real ham-fisted, bumbling consequence, end up taking things that are never intended to be literal literal, and making them literal, and therefore they don't read the Bible as it was intended, the plain sense, the literal sense, they read it literalistically. Mm-hmm. And they well, actually distort the plain meaning of the passages they purport to be reading literally. So I think they fall on their own sword on this one. And let me give you one real quick example, the one that just it amuses me to know when it comes from Hal Lindsey, so I know all dispensations don't hold this. But he makes this huge point about the locusts in Revelation, chap- uh, Revelation was it, uh, I forget, in the middle there, 16th, I don't know where it is. And he makes the point that John is, is giving a vision of an end-times battle, a future battle. He has no technological reference for a helicopter, especially a Bell Huey helicopter, which looks remarkably <laughs> like a locust. That's right. So they project, then, that John is being given a vision of some futuristic scene. He has no category, so he calls these helicopters locusts, with, you know, and then the flying scorpions with the sting in their tail and all that. He's got this lengthy description of nerve gas carried on a helicopter, and it's sprays, you know, all of this stuff. This is from the same guy who has just made the case that he reads the Bible literally. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So I, you know, I think this just has to be, be held out to them. Look, our challenge to you is dispensationalist. Fine, your hermeneutic is you read the Bible literally. Now make good on it. Yeah. And you can't. <laughs> Now, I may make some enemies saying this with some of our listeners, but would it be fair to say that um, the restoration prophecies in uh, Isaiah and the Minor Prophets, um, that they really are the linchpin in a lot of this discussion where um, dispensational premillennialists interpret those as having to do with physical Israel in the last days, and postmillennialists interpret it as having to do with the Christianization of the world before Christ comes, and amillennialists see it more eschatologically fulfilled in Christ in his first coming and then consummated in his second. Would that be fair to say that those prophecies are, are sort of the, the major departure point for a lot of the, the three schools of eschatology? Yes, you're absolutely correct, and I would press that one step farther and add, look, the reason why we read the prophecies the way you describe this fulfilled in Christ pointing ahead to the eschaton is because that's how the New Testament reads them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Our postmillennial friends have a very hard time, as to our dispensational friends, finding New Testament uh, reads on those texts that you cite, the, the Restoration passages, anything other than the Kingdom of God. And how it spreads to the world, how the Gentile nations flock to Israel's God, you know, all of that stuff is part of the Messianic Age, the, the spread of the gospel, the ends of the earth, and so on. And there, in the midst of that, there's never any sense that uh, all the nations are going to be converted at any one time. There's never a sense in the New Testament that, that tremendous economic progress is going to, to spread so that the uh, world knows no poverty, you know, life is extended, and so on, you know, all those those passages that we see in, in the exile, uh, children playing with snakes, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the New Testament reminds us and warns us that even as the, the kingdom of God spreads, there will be opposition to it everywhere it goes. Right. And so, you know, when Jesus speaks of the course of the end of the age, he uses the birth pain imagery to, to remind us there are going to be periods of great gospel expansion, there are also going to be periods of great persecution. There are going to be some places on the earth 
where the gospel is flourishing at one time and other places on the earth at the same time where the people of God are, are at the point of the sword. So I think you're exactly right, and I think the reason why I'm all-millennial and not post-millennial is because the New Testament doesn't speak of this golden age on the earth wherein all the nations are going to be converted simultaneously, wherein there'll be great economic, political, cultural, and, and such progress. This is, this is the classic debate between B.B. Warfield and Gerhardus Voss. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess, this, as the legend goes, when Warfield was getting a bit curmudgeonly toward the end of his life, he and Voss would walk the campus and with students following, listening to them debate this very topic. And Warfield's point was that Jesus returns to a saved earth, and Voss's re- rejoinder was Jesus returns to save the earth. And I right. think the New Testament clearly teaches the latter. Right. Yeah, yeah, and we we do see the differences of uh, approaches uh, hermeneutically, but also how this plays out in uh, the various schools of interpretation and the various uh, forms of uh, millenarianism or amillennialism. So uh, you've got a lot going on there. Jeff? Yes, no, uh, this, if, if we could uh, branch out maybe into the historical or the systematic. I think that would be a good time to do that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Kim, you, you're, gonna, you're working on a Two Kingdoms book, is that not correct? I am, and I'm not making the progress that I wish. Because <laughs> <laughs> you have uh, people like my, us my, bothering my day, you. <laughs> That's no, right. my day job keeps getting in the way. People keep dying and needing to be married, you know? It's just, <laughs> so. Well, it seems, seems to me that the Two Kingdoms doctrine uh, requires the amillennial eschatology. Uh, is, I think uh, you're absolutely correct. I think the, the reason why a lot of people who defend the two-age model, who defend kind of the classical reformed all-millennial, are also folks who tend towards two kingdoms, and you're absolutely correct. That notice the hermeneutic is pretty much the same. Mm. Well, the, uh, the, the transformationalist uh, viewpoint uh, would seem to require some sort of post-millennial view. Would that not be correct as well? Well, you know, there, interestingly, you you've raised that, because there are some, especially on the theonomic side, more Presbyterian circles, who... Uh, would require or at least head in the direction of some sort of postmodernism. But on the Dutch Reform side, the Neo-Kyperians and Neo-Calvinists, who are very much in the transformation culture, uh, tend to be amillennial. And so as I see one of the problems uh, arising, it's from their understanding of the kingdom of God. There's a, there's a sense here in which um, the kingdom of God is defined as the rule of God, Christ comes and brings the kingdom of God. Therefore, the kingdom of God is the rule of God over everything, including all elements of life and so on. So it's the Church's mission uh, to seek the transformation of culture, because that is how the kingdom of God advances, or at least one of the consequences of the advance of the kingdom. And I think the whole discussion of, of eschatology drives us to see the kingdom of God in a much narrower sense. The kingdom of God is God breaking into history to redeem his people. And so I see the kingdom of God in a much narrower focus is tied to God bringing salvation uh, to his people that, and the, that manifests itself in the local church with the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments, the exercise of discipline, uh, the care of the members of the congregation, their mercy, the diaconate, and so on. And so I see the kingdom of God as, as being tied pretty closely to the church and its uh, mission and uh, redemptive mission, and, and I am really a bit nervous to, to spread the kingdom into such things as education, and um, as one uh, reform writer even puts it, it has to do with golf clubs and uh, Christian scientists making uh, glassware in a Christian way. I, I think that's a, a real misunderstanding of the kingdom of God in the New Testament. Do you find, uh, historically speaking, do you would you think that it has been true that people tend to choose a millennial position uh, for pragmatic reasons uh, based on things that they can get out of it. For instance, this transformational bent. Perhaps they want to justify certain actions or certain uh, church structures or endeavors um, by espousing a post-millennial view, or do you think it's been primarily hermeneutically driven or neither? Well, you know, I'm going to say neither. I'll give you a surprising answer. I think most people pretty much accept the millennial view of the group that converted them. Yeah. yeah so right, if you grew up in a Dutch Reformed Church, you're just all millennial because Dutch Reformed people are all millennial. You never really think about it. As a matter of fact, I have very little interest in my work among my own brethren and sister because, oh, yeah, um, you're all millennial, you're Christian. <laughs> right. You know, just, I think dispensationalists grow up 
for example, I hear Calvary Chapel is a big thing. I think Chuck Smith taught a whole generation of people that uh, basically kind of a four-square gospel added dispensationalism. And I think people just uncritically accept that. Now, the, the zealots among us are those who are converted out of that. And as Luther used to speak, you know, when you get the drunk guy on the horse, he overcompensates and pitches over on the other side. Right. I think, for example, the rise of preterism and partial preterism is a reaction to the nuttiness of Bible prophecy pundits who keep making predictions that don't come to pass. Yeah, I'd agree right. with you there. I, I so, to dispensationalism. A lot of dispensationalists became theonomists because they just kept swinging the other way. Well, yeah, the, you, if you're a dispensationalist, you can't quote the Old Testament when any ethical issue comes up because we're a different dispensation. So it would seem to me that, that preterists do not like futurism. They see the problems with it, so you cut the, the tension in the New Testament between the already and the not yet. You cut that tension, and it snaps in one of two directions. It pushes everything off to the future, or it pushes everything back into the past, and it gets rid of that. It is a difficult notion in the New Testament that we live in the already in light of the not yet. That tension is found throughout the New Testament. It's intentional so that we can't set dates and so that we're not idle. So I, I think a lot of uh, partial preterists, especially among the Presbyterians, are former dispensationalists or former fundamentalists who have kind of moved that direction because of their uneasiness with futurism. Mm-hmm. So I think it behooves all of us who have converted to, to weigh very carefully our motives and to make sure that what we're doing is driven by our exegesis, by carefully identifying our presuppositions, always allowing them to be you know checked, you know, Thomas Kuhn's uh, notion about you know, yeah, paradigms being overturned. Well, we have to keep our paradigm pretty clearly defined before our eyes, so we are allowing it to be subject to critical experimentation. I, I think it's really healthy. Um, for example, when I, I get uh, an email question from somebody on the other side, it's healthy for me. I don't like doing this, but it's healthy for me to ask the question, you know, does this guy have a point? Is the argument valid? You know, am I communicating this to him? Is he reading me properly? That helps me be sharper. That helps me to, to keep my own sinful propensity to react against my past in check. And I think it really is a, is a, is a good exercise. So, I, you know, it's distasteful to me. I don't like answering those questions and, and hearing the same kind of objections a million times over, but it's really a good process. And, and I think it keeps us from, you know, pitching one way or the other. We need to, to keep that before our eyes. So here are our operating assumptions. Let's continually subject them to testing and critical evaluation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to piggyback on you uh, introducing the subject of preterism and partial preterism and ask if you would just briefly talk to our listeners about um, about how your understanding of the AD 70 plays into your interpretation of the Olivet Discourse and okay. maybe even the Book of Revelation. I know that's a huge subject, but just um, maybe um, saying what, if any, role that does play in biblical interpretation. That's very helpful. My sense of preterism, and I, I use the term now generically to speak of all those who argue that Christ came back in some way, shape, form in AD 70, and that the destruction of the Temple in AD 70 marks the end of the Jewish era. Um, I think once you've made that conclusion, then you find yourself having to read every text in the New Testament as though it were written before A.D. 70. Now, I think there are certain senses in which we have to see much of the New Testament written before A.D. 70, the Olivet Discourse being a primary one. I'm of the opinion that that's a predictive prophecy from Jesus. Uh, I did a Ph.D. seminar out here at Fuller under Don Hagner, whose scholarship I highly regard, but there was a, a, a tendency in those circles to are you well the gospel's written in 80 and these words are put back in Jesus's mouth and so we have that whole set of problems i want to i want to first of all argue that the gospels and the Olivet discourse are predictive prophecy written before the events at hand so i think that pushes the date back early for a very very important reason i think the evidence takes us that direction as well so i take the Olivet discourse as jesus up on the mount of olives looking across the kidron valley down on the temple mount and explain to his disciples, answering their questions to him. I think this is really huge. What are they asking him? He's told them the temple's going to be destroyed. And then he told them he was speaking of his body. They still don't get it. So, Jesus, when is the temple going to be destroyed? What's the sign of your coming? What's the end of the age? So Jesus answers their questions. I think what he does in the answer is to correct their misguided assumption that the destruction of the temple is the end of the age. I think he's correcting that. I mean, if you're a Jew at that time, 
and somebody told you the temple was going to be destroyed and the city of Jerusalem was going to be sacked, you know your history well enough to know that this has to be the end of time. Right. If this happens again, this just has to be the the end. This you know, and all the other messianic images uh, associated with Christ's entrance into Jerusalem and all of that. So in the Olivet Discourse, he corrects that assumption that the destruction of the temple is the end of the age, and that's why he uses prophetic idiom to describe in great detail the destruction of the city and its temple in AD 70, and then in verse 28, and for example, Matthew 24, immediately after the distress of those days, he now jumps ahead and speaks of the end. So to answer your question, Nick, I take Matthew 24 to be a description by and large, of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. I think this is the greatest destruction the city has ever experienced or will ever experience. I think it's the great tragedy of all of redemptive history that God's people are once again cast from the land, sent out into the nations, uh, that the temple upon which so much righted and had become an obstacle to faith, that they were trusting in having this building and animal sacrifice, not looking forward to the righteousness that comes by faith, all of that. So, to answer your question in terms of contemporary debate, I think the Olivet Discourse is largely about the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, when Jesus then leaps forward to the end of the age. And I think you make sense of the sign language. Right. There are signs in Matthew 24 especially. Uh, to the disciples, this is going to happen to you. Uh, there's signs that characterize the entire interadvental period, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, you know, famine, and so on. And then there are signs of the end immediately when the heavens are dark and you know, the moon doesn't give its lights, lightning flashes from east to west, so shall be in the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, right. That's not a local coming, that's a universal coming. Right. So I, I'm a bit amused because my futurist friends, my former dispensational friends, all call me a a preterist, and preterists all call me a futurist. So, <laughs> well, that brings I apparently up, that successfully brings up, confused all of them. Well, that brings up an interesting point on the, on taxonomy here when we start to categorize different positions, and there still is a breadth of understanding even within the category, the larger category of amillennialism. We think of uh, mm-hmm. people like uh, um, Anthony Hookma, who, who some have called an earthy amillennial. Uh, you know, you end up with an amillennialism that is a little more uh, palatable for for a former dispensationalist. You end up with other people that like to call themselves post-millennial, but they they call themselves pessimistic post-millennialists. Uh, you you might end up with like a Keith Mathis in there or some other people where the ordering of events is very similar to amillennialism, but still they want to call themselves post-millennial. What do you, what do you make of uh, the taxonomy here, and um, how do we go about engaging with others as as we have some disagreements of terms? Well, I think you raise another really interesting question. This is an in-house reform question, and I, I think it's one that we don't often talk about uh, often enough. If you're going to go back and look at uh, Gerhardus Voss's uh, essay on millennialism written for the Old International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, if memory doesn't fail me, he speaks of premillennial and postmillennial Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody knows when the term amillennial was coined, and some think it actually comes from Abraham Kuyper, at least Oswald Alice. Kind so of he's to blame. <laughs> but he's to blame. As many so people are unhappy with the term. Say, all that is to say, all amillennarians are post-millennial. Mm, that's um, right. The way we structure eschatology is we think the millennial age occurs before Christ comes back. Therefore, all all millenarians structurally are post-millennial. The difference of opinion is about the nature, duration, and character of the millennial age. So if you've read A Case for All Millennialism pretty carefully, you you get my intention. Um, I wrote that book specifically for those kind of John MacArthur followers who listen to White Horse Inn and who start to become, you know, embrace the Reformed Lutheran view of justification, who start to kind of think about two kingdoms, who start to kind of think about some of the classical categories, and then say, well, I can't make the move because I'm premillennial. So I wrote the book for those people. Yes. And I say that because I don't think there's that huge a fight between uh, certain forms of postmillennialism, like that Keith Matheson uh, defends, like that of Charles Hodge or even Warfield. I don't think the the differences are, are huge between those folks and myself on the millennial question. No, I don't either. It, it, I mean... 
it's a question of when does the money begin, what's associated with it, how long does it last. I mean, Warfield lays basically an all-millennial egg, even though he's post-millennial. He, he self-consciously says, look, I'm with Kuiper on this. I'm, I'm against Kuiper on this. I'm post-millennial. But his protégés are all all-millennial because his exegesis of all the critical passages tends toward all-millennial. So I think the differences are pretty small. Throw theonomy in there, however, and they get the, right. the difference of opinion becomes much greater. And it's because or, yeah. of your understanding of the nature and character of the millennial age. Right. Or, or now you don't necessarily find the theonomy in terms of uh, all the ethical implications that come along with it, but you do find some radical forms of uh, neo, neo-Calvinism and, and, as Jeff mentioned earlier, some transformationalist things that, yes, that tend exactly. toward uh, a post-millennial position yeah, for mm-hmm. pragmatic reasons. Well, and I blame a lot of this on Greg Bonson. That essay um, where he wrote the prima facie case for post-millennialism and he makes the point this all comes down to pessimistic all-millenarians versus optimistic post-millenarians. Right, well, right, yeah. you don't do eschatology by pathos, you know? Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm very optimistic about the spread of the kingdom of God. I'm just really pessimistic about human government. Right. Yeah. I think John Paul is the beast. That's great. It's almost I, a rhetorical I, device because you end up, uh, in, in some of the lectures right. he gave on it, it's, don't you think that God could do these things by his spirit? And, yeah, and, and it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's an unfortunate way to try to get people onto your side in that case. Well, it, it plays well in America with former dispensationalists. But try that in the third world with Chinese Christians or, um, you know, with Christians who are who face real persecution, and then it, right. it just doesn't work. So, it, you know, uh, I, 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 I think we've got to chuck the optimistic, pessimistic things and, and have a realistic debate about this without the, the coinage. Yeah. I, I I had through seminary a number of postmillennial friends who used to say, "Well, we have a triumphant eschatology, and you have a defeatist eschatology." And so I started searching the scriptures, and really, one of the only times that Paul ever uses the word triumph is in Second Corinthians two, where he says, "Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph, life to life to some, death to death to others." So. Um, you know, that's that's a straw man argument to say it's yeah. only triumphant if the world is Christianized, because we believe Christ triumphed at the cross and that the gospel right. is always triumphing, whether people are being saved or perishing. So, Well, that's exactly right. Like I say, I, I, I want to reiterate, I'm very optimistic about the spread of the kingdom of God and the missionary endeavors of the Church, evangelism, and our own communities and the ends of the earth. I think, that, I think Jesus is very clear that the gospel is going to spread to the ends of the earth. Yeah. But I don't think that necessarily translates into all the nations becoming Christian in, in the general cultural sense. And I don't think that it's, it's fair to say, because I don't believe that, I'm pessimistic. I, I think, you know, the image that I keep reminding my postmillennial friends is that of the uh, uh, harlot Babylon in Revelation. I mean, you know, uh, granted, it's Rome, it's also the United States. It, it's a, it's right. a reoccurring image of, of any world power yeah. that seduces the kings of the earth, right. you know, and, and invites them in her spiritual fornication. And, and that, you know, the, 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 the whore there is not displaced until the new heavens and earth come down out of heaven on the spot where Babylon was. So, like I say, I'm very optimistic about what God's saying. I just think human sin is going to remain until the end, and, and I don't... Uh, I, I always tell my postmillennial friends, all right, go to your general assembly. I'm going to get in real trouble for this, but that's <laughs> worth it. Go to your general assembly or to your synod and think for a minute if those men ruled the country. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there was, in some ways it would be better, in some ways it would be a whole lot worse. That's funny. And it would take too long to get things done. There'd be too many motions and too many of the same people who want to stand up and speak over and over. But I, I use that facetiously to say, you know, look at our own guys. What if our own guys were in charge? You really want this? You yeah. really want the church ruling the earth? I don't think so. Right. Yeah. Now, Kim, uh, what do you make of the, the idea that uh, the kingdom uh, comes in through the efforts of human beings? Well, I think it's an absolutely flawed notion of the kingdom of God. Biblically, God imposes it. It comes... Uh, in unexpected ways, it, it, you people will say, "Here it is," or "There it is." You know, it, it's uh, a matter of joy, peace, righteousness, and the Holy Spirit. The, the kingdom of God doesn't have a, a logo or a CFO or a CEO. It doesn't have a PO box. You can't get in the family SUV and go see it on vacation. It's a spiritual kingdom. It, 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 it it's manifested every Lord's Day 
when a minister of the gospel preaches the good news of Christ crucified and administers the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So it has to be grasped through the eyes of faith. Men cannot bring the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is like the wind that goes wherever God wills it to go. And I think that's a huge exegetical argument that we need to be very clear about against our transformational friends. Not because it's we're, we're saying what they're doing is evil, but I think what they're doing is actually depreciating the kingdom of God mm. by, by tying it to culture. Kim, can I jump us ahead, since we don't have a whole lot of time, to talk with you about um, uh, Christ's victory over Satan and how that plays into eschatology? Because that seems to me, at least when I came to amillennialism probably about 10 years ago, that seemed like a pretty major thing. You know, the whole uh, Revelation 20 speaking about Satan being bound and Colossians speaking about him disarming principalities and powers and can you talk to our listeners a bit about how uh, Christ's victory over Satan uh, plays into eschatology? Sure, that's a that's a very good question, and it's, you guys are really full of good questions. Um, as a matter of fact, whenever I speak on this topic, I, that's the question that you know you can just see people waiting for the Q and A time because they want to nail me on how can Satan be bound and things be so bad? Yeah. Well, well, again, you look at the passage. What does the passage say about Satan being bound? It says he can no longer deceive the nation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean, yeah, that doesn't mean he's unactive. That doesn't mean he's not a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. It doesn't mean that he can't wage war on the church. It means that he cannot organize the nations against the gospel. Now, Old Testament history takes me back to the book of Daniel and those four great empires where those empires, as geopolitical realities, did oppose the kingdom of God directly with the sword and with the purse, with the might of, of men and of nations. And you think of the, you know, the four empires that Daniel sees in his vision, finally crushed by Christ. So I think that's the, the point of reference. So all of it is to say, uh, it is the preaching of the gospel that frustrates Satan's ability to organize the nations against the gospel. And I do think Revelation 20, if, if I read it aright, tells me that at some point in the future, shortly before the end, God is going to cease his restraint of Satan for a short season, that Satan is going to uh, be able to organize a, a concerted effort against the people of God. The Old Testament background for this is pretty clear. People like Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and others you know, that, that uh, use the sword and oppression against the Israelites, well, that's kind of the imagery that comes up again. I see the church being uh, persecuted mightily. I see the people of God, you know, if, unless the Lord cuts short today, you know, who's going to survive? And in the midst of that, uh, the Lord returns. So I take the view that Satan being bound is limited to his ability to, to deceive and organize the nations yeah. and so on mm-hmm. to the point that he, he's, he, the gospel is what restrains him, is ultimately the, the case I'd make. And I, I think there's an interesting read on the uh, man of sin passage in Second Thessalonians. I've also written on that topic pretty extensively as well. Mm-hmm. That the man of sin is revealed to be destroyed. That there's a there's a sense here in which this is the final kind of stanza here, the final strophe in, in history. When this man appears on the scene, probably some sort of geopolitical figure tied to. Uh, I, I it's my personal opinion. I think the text points us in this direction that this is state-sponsored heresy of some sort. Uh, the the picture would be. Emperor worship, the worship of Nero and the Caesars, you know, the men who take to themselves divine prerogatives, they, they claim for themselves things that rightly belong to God, and when Christians say, you can't do that, they get really angry, and they hate God's people for calling them out on that. Mm-hmm. So when this individual is revealed, it's revealed, he's revealed for the purpose of being destroyed. So I see this as occurring right before the time of the end. I see this in conjunction with, say, the conversion of Israel. That's a very controversial point. Um, so I think there are some, some signs of the end, and I think one of those is the release of Satan from the abyss, his ability to organize uh, geopolitical forces against the Church. And, you know, it could be Islam. Uh, a lot of, right. of our guys right. heresy there. Yeah. have right. identified this as Islam. Others, you could you can see this being a secular state where no religion was allowed. You could, you could see the nations of the West saying, we've had it with a religious war. You can't be religious anymore. There's just all kinds of things like yeah. that. So it's foolish for us to guess. And Gerhardus Voss, bless his heart, says, you know, with a lot of these passages, the best interpreter is going to be their fulfillment. Mm. 
That's and true. I think we kind of have to leave some of it at that. Right. Kim, I'd just like to ask one more. Um, almost everybody in my church comes from premillennial backgrounds. I know that um, that was kind of the prevailing eschatology in America the last hundred years. Um, and the one uh, just, and I know you know this, but the, the big stumbling point is the whole left behind. Um, Jesus explicitly says, you know, one will be taken, one will be left. And the disciples say, where, Lord? And he says, wherever the eagles, the carcasses there, the eagles will be gathered. Could you just tell our listeners how you understand um, our Lord's teaching there about what is he teaching about when he says one will be taken, one will be left, and, and where they're taken and left? Uh, well, our dispensational friends want to tie that to the rapture, which occurs seven years before Christ physically returns to earth. And I think I go at this a couple of ways. One is to say, uh, should those events occur at a secret rapture, then you have a real problem because when that occurs, the trumpet sounds. And the trumpet in First Thessalonians 4, uh, with the trumpet, the voice of God, and the shout. So are we really to believe, Mr. Dispensationalist, on your hermeneutic where we interpret the Bible literally, that nobody's going to hear the trumpet of God the uh, command and, and, the, and the voice of the archangel. It'll be like my a friend, dog whistle. Yeah, my friend Ken Jones uses a dog whistle imagery. I think it's just hilarious. <laughs> so part of that is, uh, on your own terms, you can't make sense of that passage. We can make sense of that passage because when Christ comes back, there are going to be the separation of the wheat and the tare, the sheep and the goats, the elect and the reprobate. And that's exactly what's going on in those passages. We find it in Matthew and Luke as well. Right. So I, I think... Yeah, there is a, a moment in time coming where our Lord returns, and some are taken, uh, and the ones left behind me, the ones left behind for judgment. Who knows? Right, and wherever the carcass is, they're left to the place of the dead. Yeah. They're left to the place yeah. of judgment and death. And just yeah. like the men in Noah's day, Noah and his family were taken, and they were left for judgment. Right, and that seems to fit with Revelation 19 and the uh, birds feasting on carcasses and so on. So. Right, right. Well, this has been a very insightful discussion. We thank you so much, Dr. Riddlebarger, for joining us and uh, for opening up uh, the subject of amillennialism. We hope this has been uh, very useful to the people listening. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I'm very glad to do it and always enjoy it. Yeah, I would like to uh, point people to several different resources online. Of course, uh, Kim Riddlebarger blogs at kimriddlebarger.squarespace.com. And you can visit his church online at ChristReformed.org. That's uh, Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, California. And, of course, you can visit WhitehorseInn.org as well. Find out information about all of their wonderful broadcasts and uh, where you can listen to them, either their podcast or uh, on a local radio station around the country, around the world, indeed. Uh, and I will put some links to further resources in the show notes as well. There's a whole series of uh, materials on amillennialism called Amillennialism 101, and I've got a link to a page that has collected many of those together. So uh, visit us online, and uh, you'll find all the links to all of those things. Of course, you can visit us online at reformedforum.org, and there you will find information about all of our programs as well as a schedule about our upcoming broadcast when we're going to be live discussing. So visit us online and we want to thank everybody for listening and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.